welcome to Totally Unrelated, a place for big ideas, brain parts, and the occasional venting session. My name's Diana. And I am Irina. And we'll be doing what we do best, rolling our eyes at each new mutation of humanity's stupidity gene and the conditions that bring these about. Our topic of the day is From Fan Fiction to Fascism, How to Create the Lore Behind a Political Ascension. We're going to talk about the power of taking familiar characters, symbols, and tropes and using them for good or evil. Our case studies will include a Russian occultist, two Austrian proto-fascist writers, and a supernatural series fandom. We'll briefly discuss the political, economic, and cultural context that allowed proto-fascist ideas from the 19th century to enter the public discourse and get enacted with a couple of generations. How the abuse of science, or should we say pseudoscience, to enforce existing prejudices and justify class, racial, and gender oppression ran parallel with the revival of the public's interest in myths, the occult, and folklore. We're going to look at the core ideas and biography of three key figures, Russian occultist Yelena Blavatsky and two Austrian authors and self-styled occultists whose ideas had a direct influence on Nazi ideologues. And because we don't want to be entirely pessimistic about the power of fanfiction, we're going to contrast some current fandoms with the horrid racists of past uh, fandoms. But first, let's start off with some definitions and a disclaimer. As you might have guessed by now from our accents, we are not native English speakers. So feel free to enjoy the accidental hilarity this might cause every now and then. <clears throat> okay, and now that we've got that one out of the way, uh, let's talk a bit about the title for this episode. My intention was to somehow capture the literary underpinnings of fascist ideologies, their initial blossoming under the seemingly innocuous guise of mediocre fanfiction, as I called it. You had a bit of a gut reaction to my framing initially. Oh, why was that? <clears throat> of course, you mentioned fanfic, so my main objection, the, the first one, was kind of a knee-jerk objection, because I love me some fanfiction, and you shall not disparage it, girl. I mean, before I got interested in the history of fanfiction, I fell in love with the fandoms, the life in fandoms. And um, I am a weird cookie, and somehow I managed to swim past fandom wars and just latch onto the good bits where the fix, um, and the good fix and the good vids lived. So for me, fanfics have been those stories where I read about silly stuff, where I read smart, but also where I read about issues that I didn't encounter anywhere else. Also, I interacted with the writers, and uh, somehow this was for me a source of finding out about ideas and experiences that I never heard before. Uh, so it was hard for me to fathom turning this extremely positive engagement into something that people used for evil. But at some point, I stumbled upon the history of fanfiction and how this simply means to play with characters or to play with stories that were already told by other authors. And a lot of people today would be outraged if somebody called Romeo and Juliet fanfiction, but it fits the definition above. Reimagining a character, reimagining a story or the ending, or fixing plot holes in the story the way you would like. All of it can be fanfiction. 
fanfiction is all about how you can take ownership of an already existing story, an already existing narrative. It's the most natural thing. We all do it since we are kids. <clears throat> I mean, who hasn't retold the story to their friends only to make it better? Or at least, you know, we were thinking we were making it better. Uh, <laughs> or at least what a nine-year-old considers, you know, to be better. So I can see how taking ownership of another story, you can do it for good, but you can also do it for evil. Just to be simplistic, I can see how you might need fanfiction in order to reach a certain aesthetic and a certain instant recognition when you want attention for your own ideas. And in a somewhat completely unrelated idea, when I started thinking about the, you know, what a fanfiction actually is, I actually wanted to ask myself, did, you know, Mark and Luca and John and Matthew, did they write fanfiction? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they did. I don't see any citations, so... <laughs> one can argue. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that was my somewhat convoluted reason. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, for most of the people, I guess, who know about fan fictions, it's usually, so to speak, either a force for good in that it helps them cope with probably either trauma or sometimes just boredom in their life. Or It just, uh, it just yeah. brings about interactions with new ideas from new people, from their perspective, you know, something mm -hmm. that generally you don't find in mainstream media but also you don't necessarily find in your friends because your friends tend to be people from your bubble a lot like you you know yeah. so yeah and also from at least from uh, my experience it's usually quite interesting because uh, the comments are really supportive mm -hmm. and sometimes you know it's like Fan fiction, yes, it's written by fans of a certain work, but also uh, sometimes your own, what well, your own readers, the readers of uh, a particular fan fiction, they act like fans to the person writing it. Sure, they're very yeah. uh, sort of supportive, encouraging. Yeah, and... sure. To the prolific writers uh, yeah. in fandoms, it actually happens. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, you know, like with all good things, yeah, sure. Like I, <laughs> there, I, are, there are some people who will find a way yeah, to I, fuck I mean, it up. I, I, I did realize, you know, how, how it can happen because you have something that already is easily recognizable and already draws attention. So you get, you, you take that idea that mm -hmm. is already out there and it's a lot easier to twist it. Yeah, because obviously it's it's more difficult to have like, an agenda, so to speak, and to want to convince people of whatever your ideas are, but also do it through um, your talents, yeah. <laughs> especially if you don't have a lot of it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like some of the guys we're going to talk about. Um, so do yeah. go ahead and tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, <laughs> okay, let me just start uh, a, a bit from the beginning. Uh, there is ample biography when it comes to the rise of the Nazi party or other fascist, fascist forces in Europe, but I was interested in looking back a few more steps into the past uh, and understand why uh, ideas that were not really new. I mean, it's not like 
you know, it was the intellectual dark web and people never knew how it would be to hate on other people. So, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, I, I, I wanted to know how uh, at that crucial moment, those ideas that have been sort of around since forever uh, just suddenly became so popular, so really easily absorbed by people and then led to obviously political action and terrible consequences. Uh, and because the 20th century has taught us that what, all the bad things that we can think of can be blamed on the Austrians. Of course. <laughs> we'll mostly be looking at these ideas in the context of the late 19th century and early 20th century um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. What was happening around that time in the region? Well, 19th century Europe had a big hard-on for nation-states <laughs> and anyone who was anyone wanted to have one. They sort of still do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, besides Germans uh, within the Austrian uh, Empire who shared an empire with a number of other ethnic groups, uh, Germany as a state took a while to appear. And when it did, it basically didn't live up to the hype of many Germans. Now, on the one hand, this was due to the fact that some uh, Germans from Austria wanted to be part of the new Germany, but Bismarck, Germany's chancellor, had other plans. Uh, in fact, he took on Austria and defeated it in 1866, uh, establishing Prussia as the core which uh, the future German state would uh, come together around and also forcing Austria to begin its dual monarchy phase the next year, uh, which we'll see had more important consequences for our story down the line. On the other hand, the new German state immediately started playing catch up with other industrialized nations. And this didn't just, set, uh, didn't just upset um, romantic sensibilities at the time, it also eroded the material reality that romantics idealized old, small, rural communities, small manufacturing, and things like craftsmanship. Essentially, it was a time of accelerated change on many fronts, from science and technology to politics and people's everyday lives. Um, you had a situation in which large masses of people were being uprooted and displaced, many going into big cities to seek employment. Uh, you had automation, which was rendering some occupational, uh, occupations obsolete, uh, while also by breaking down processes into simpler tasks, it was reducing the level of skill required from workers within mm -hmm. the manufacturing of a product. Uh, this in turn, of course, meant that many workers became more easily replaceable. So there's a lot of job insecurity and you get a large class of working poor people clustered together in slums which is always uh, a recipe. Good idea. Yeah, a, yeah. A good idea always. <laughs> Let's have a ghetto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, eventually, this leads to the development of labor movements, uh, with socialist workers' parties gaining a voice in the political arena, which makes middle-class people very nervous. <laughs> it makes them even more nervous because at the same time, you get a growing women's emancipation movement, double yikes, uh, and all the queers writing the best poetry and fiction. Thank God damn it! Yeah, <clears throat> I mean you can you can see how you know the middle class was like trembling. <laughs> yeah, there's just just no more room for like normal 
white people anymore, right? <laughs> just of course. no, no, no. Just pull themselves by the bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, course. yeah. What's with all these novels written by queer people? I just no, I don't know. <laughs> but like, how, how did they know at the time that those people were queer? Because they just were. Did the did the gossip come come? Uh, with the postman at the time? They wore fancy clothes. That's how you know people were queer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> their socks matched their ties. That's how yeah, okay. you knew, honey. Um, so zooming back in on Austria, uh, I mentioned earlier the fact that the defeat of 1866 uh, set in motion a series of events that would add fuel to the nationalist fire. As the dream of a big Germany that would include Austrian-German nationals uh, evaporated, uh, a movement called the Pan-Germans started advocating for a separation of majority German territories from the Austrian Empire and their unification with Germany. I mean, as you can imagine, that wasn't popular with the emperor (laughs) and neither with the general Austrian public. But two things that really gave these guys some traction and political relevancy for quite some times were, uh, well, the first was the creation of the dual monarchy, as I said, uh, which meant that the two halves of the empire were run from either Vienna or Budapest. So um, Germans were not the only big boys in town anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Because they had to sort of split uh, the power within the empire. Uh, Secondly, this move made all the other ethnic groups within the empire go, uh, hey, uh, wait a minute, (laughs) so we can do this now? We can can share power among us? Then, okay, I, I want some, please. So for many middle-class Germans who found themselves unable to cope with the fast pace of transformations around them, all these women's, workers, and nationalist movements of everyone else who wasn't German because their nationalist movement was like okay. A-OK. Yeah, course, that's, you want that. Uh, so <laughs> uh, for them, it all uh, came across as, oh, look at all these uppity people who want to get ahead. How very dare they? Of course. <laughs> Um, and also, it's interesting to mention that while at some point nationalism had played an important part in undermining the arbitrariness of um, dynastic politics, right? Because mm-hmm. it was all kings decided that they should just go to war and fuck all the poor people who are actually going to die in the war. And it was also, you know, it had a role, uh, nationalism also had a role in the fight against feudalism in general uh, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, But by the end of the 19th century, it had hitched itself to the bandwagon of a very crudely understood Darwinism. Mm Yeah. And what could go wrong when you use a new scientific discovery to prop up where the worst uh, people's worst impulses, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that um, I realized when you asked me this was that apparently the worst thing that can happen to smart men is to uh, discover that they are related to even smarter men. Oh. <laughs> and of course, uh, I am talking about Francis Galton. It's not cousin Winnie? Uh, <laughs> no, but close. I mean, he is the cousin of Darwin. Mm. And uh, he was born in uh, 1822, the same year as Mendel, uh, and 13 years after cousin Darwin was born. And he was smart, and he was wealthy, and he was well-educated, and he was a man. So, you know, and white, and... So it sounds like the... Pre- <laughs> three, uh, three out of four. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it sounds like the premise to feel good about winning the lottery of life, you'd, you'd think. I mean, at least I'd think. Well, apparently, you cannot do that if you are also the cousin of Charles Darwin. Because what good are all those great things you got going for you? If the world does not recognize you to be a game changer, to be the ultimate genius, or at least to be on par with your cousin. So, you know, uh, the guy came up with the word and the so-called science of eugenics. And all of this out of an impulse of sort of notice me senpai? Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. It was like, I know he's my cousin, but you know, I am awesomer. <laughs> <laughs> did he did he actually want to impress uh, his cousin yes, yes, as well? Yes. So yes. it wasn't just like no, the world did, look he, at me instead of he, looking at my cousin, but also was cousin world look, at, look me. at me, but also cousin look at me. Ah, I see. Yeah. Mm. He 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 did send his work to his cousin, who sort of petted him on his head and was like, you yeah, know. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. So um, he came up with eugenics, but before he ended up. Uh, coming up with this um, awesome idea. He uh, had another few good ideas. Yeah, sure, you, you, <laughs> you always build up to, yeah, yeah, sure. to, to the one great idea of your yeah. life. Before he came up with the idea of eugenics, he tried medicine, he tried mathematics, he tried biology. Uh, but all he managed to do was to get a nervous breakdown instead of world recognition and move back home with his parents. Happens to me every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so, after... You know, during this time when he was trying to study all these fields, uh, Charles Darwin was actually becoming somebody. Um, so he reads Cousin Darwin's work, and uh, he figures the missing part of that work is about the mechanics of heredity, which, you know, th this part was true. So he tries to do actual science, but discover that, you know, he's an abysmal experimentalist, managing to fail at all his experiments with animals and pets. The first epic fail. The first, the first uh, epic fail. All his plants die, or his animals die in the experiments. <laughs> so that led him to the obvious conclusion. I mean, if he's bad with plants and animals, then he really must try stuff on humans. Because, of course, when you don't understand rats and beans, switching to a top-down approach where you try to understand the most complex organisms first is a great way to success. And amusingly, he also decided to study variants that he had no tools to measure. Uh, because, you know, like Mendel was studying stuff he could actually see. and Peace. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, colors or, you know, how um, big they grew. Something that was easily yeah. uh, measurable. But no, no, no. <laughs> Our guy Gelton, he, he decides that he will go uh, for measuring intelligence and beauty. I mean, <laughs> <Of course>. priorities. <laughs> and for intelligence, he decided to measure to measure it uh, using the examination marks for the mathematical honors exam at Cambridge. Ironically, the very test he had failed before his nervous breakdown. <laughs> because I don't know why. So basically, he he ascertained that people uh, were as dumb as he was. Pretty much. Okay. Um, and for the beauty, for, you know, measuring beauty... He, he took used, himself as the golden standard. Of course. He used <laughs> his own opinion for real. Yeah. And uh, he had uh, this 
paper in his pocket and he would just write down his opinion of the women he saw. And that was how he measured beauty for real. Perfectly normal way to do it. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know why you're bringing this up. Is it I, this how, how everyone does it? Yeah, sure. Um, don't you walk around with a piece of paper in your pocket and just I, whenever you see some dude you like, you're like, fuck, Mary kill. Of course, of course. That's how I do it. But at least I, I don't aspire to write a scientific paper Maybe about it. Maybe you should, girl. I am so close to my thesis and I didn't even know. Yeah. And for proof, uh, the proof that what he was doing uh, makes sense and that, you know awesomeness is generally inherited he also used himself as an example and uh, he looked at some more wealthy people and he concluded and i shit you not like this was his conclusion that lords produce lords <laughs> i mean it's it's uh, bulletproof it's uh, sure. bulletproof logic and, but but also basically uh what you said about uh the fact that Uh, he took himself as an example. Yes. So look at me. I am the cousin of Darwin and less capable than he is. Sure. And that's an argument for my <laughs> thesis. <laughs> well, well, um, it's really not. If you think you are just as capable, only people haven't discovered you yet. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You so know? it's a problem of perception. Exactly. Mm, mm. So interesting. Maybe it's it's not that easy to to determine things like beauty and intelligence? Almost, almost. It seems like that, doesn't almost. it? Almost. Hmm. So even though actual scientists were doing um, actual work in a scientific way on the problem of heredity, uh, this did not deter Galton. Despite not managing any real scientific discovery, he decided to get to improving the human race. I mean, again, just like that. Again, my usual weekend schedule. Yeah. And he proposed that eugenics um, had to be, and I quote now, had to be introduced into the national consciousness like a new religion. Well, mm. um, but even if to a lot of the scientific community, his ideas had actually no basis. Uh, and no. A, and and uh, <laughs> a lot of the people who were actually doing science took notice and told him. Um, but a lot of wealthy people in England... Uh, who were frightened because they were seeing, you know, an empowerment of the working class happening. And um, those pesky women. And the, the, never forget never, the pesky women and never, the queers. Never forget the pesky women. Um, gave him, you know, a lot of support. And uh, I wonder why. Yeah. It's almost like they had like a vested interest in this. <laughs> sure. Um, to prove that lords produce lords. <laughs> and uh, Galton and others like him thought that The political empowerment of the working class, and this is a quote, the political empowerment of the working class would just provoke their genetic empowerment. They would produce bushels of children, dominate the gin pool, and drag the nation towards profound mediocrity. Bushels of children. Yes, yes. yes. So, in the end, Galton embraced selective breeding and selective sterilization, And all of it culminating in the writing of actually a science fiction novel. <laughs> If only who, he would have stopped there. <laughs> and um, the novel was... Um, titled? Yeah, was titled um, Can't Say Where, for some reason. 
And it uh, was... C-U-N-T. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was about a future utopia um, in which uh, half of the population was marked as unfit and was severely restricted in its ability to reproduce. Mm. And uh, the, the novel was passed down to his niece, who was so embarrassed by this <laughs> novel that she decided to, like, bury it forever. <laughs> um, but even if during his lifetime, Galton didn't necessarily manage to take his idea to um, national uh, politics and, mm -hmm. you know, implement it as law, in the year of Galton's death, in 1912, uh, that was the year when the first international conference on eugenics opened. Mm -hmm. And in attendance, there were, you know, some people <coughs> not very well known, like, you know, Winston Churchill and oh. Alexander Graham Bell, you know. and uh, Anonymous, basically. Yeah, anonymous, totally. <laughs> and here is where the idea of race hygiene theory was first presented. And despite the fact that there was a presentation about Germany's effort on uh, race hygiene, the Americans were all um, well ahead uh, at that time. Number one, USA! <laughs> USA exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, we, we can see why some people want to make America great again. Yeah. The presentations talk about um, the centers the places for the genetically unfit that, or, that already existed in the U.S. at the time. And eight states uh, already had laws that required sterilization of the genetically unfit. By uh, 1927, we have the decision of the Supreme Court in the United States that is pro-genetic sterilization with the reasoning, and I quote, it is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offsprings for their crimes or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. So this takes place uh, around 1912, you said? No, this was in uh, the decision of the Supreme Court was in 1927. It only took 10 years from the first mm -hmm. uh, international conference on eugenics to, to the decision of the Supreme Court. Uh, reforms reforms can, can be so swift sometimes. Yes, you yeah. know. <laughs> but, uh, but also it was really interesting because they mentioned sort of like the cost of, yes. uh, you know, feeding the... Uh, sure. mentally challenging and you know Feeding just to... and putting them in jail also yeah and and <laughs> yeah but especially the, the the feeding bit and taking mm -hmm. care of them you know because what we know is that 1920s was just like the golden age of the welfare state wasn't it sure I mean... and and all the social services <laughs> everywhere and it was basically scandinavia all over the world right <laughs> well I mean, United States is the best example for a welfare state today. So yes. I can imagine that yes. in 1927. Of course. of course. So, you know, you start off from uh, we cannot possibly do the thing, things that we don't do and don't wish to do because they are expensive. Sure. So that's why we need to kill the poor people. Yes. So basically, it only took six decades since Mendel first wrote about genes in a science paper and until the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to genetically motivated sterilization. 
And yet nobody still had any idea what a gene even was or how heredity actually worked on complex traits. Or how to wear them. (laughs) (laughs) There even were, uh, uh, at at that time in the United States, uh, there were premarital genetic fitness tests being sold. Even though nobody even began to think about sequencing the human genome. I mean, they didn't even know what the human genome was. Did they just pee on sticks? I have actually no idea how, how, how they were, I mean, what they were even measuring, what I have no idea. When, when did they first uh, discover, oh, I mean, when did they first establish like the different um, um, blood groups? Was oh, it before this time? Because at least, it, would, would they at least know it, how to it was, uh, do that? It was somewhere, somewhere at the beginning of the 1900s, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly when. Yeah. Um, and, um, well... Uh, From uh, these lovely ideas of um, the Americans, uh, from there to the Nazis, it was just one more step. Uh, The law of sterilization in Germany actually copied the ideas uh, from the laws that already existed in the United States. Mm. And um, all these sinister ideas were supported by movies and by books that um, were made both in Germany and the United States, because you can never have propaganda without some, uh, you know, fiction. (laughs) And uh, in this mix of pseudoscience and outright fiction, murder just sort of slipped in the back door. uh, And somehow genetic-based euthanasia just looked to everybody like the next logical step. Okay, so we've had uh, an overview of the general uh, context within Europe and in Austria-Hungary, more specifically, all the things that were going on. And the reason we did this is to sort of see how uh, you had uh, uh, all these all these conditions laid up uh, ground for the development of an audience that would be receptive to both occultism and the sort of conspiratorial thinking that Mm -hmm. many of these people uh, would sort of rely on to structure their beliefs. I feel like we cannot in earnest begin our conversation without first doing a bit of patriarchy bashing. Would you be surprised to learn that the gentlemen who made a name for themselves uh, by uh, using occult symbolism and mythology as inspiration uh, were actually following in the footsteps of one Russian occultist and adventurous Yelena Petrona, Petrovna Plavatsky? Well, I would be, but basically I don't know anything about the subject. So me being, you know, surprised. <laughs> I'm only five minutes wiser than you are, so... <laughs> Apparently those five minutes yeah, count. Every, every second counts. Okay, so let's, uh, let's dig in. Uh, Blavatsky was born to an aristocratic Russian-German family in Yekaterinoslav, modern-day Ukraine. And in in the 1850s and 60s, she embarked on a two-decade-long journey throughout Europe, the Americas and Asia to study occultism, during which time she absorbed a lot of knowledge that would later form the basis of her brand of spiritualism. At one point during her trip, she claimed to have met and been initiated by two masters called Moria and Kuthumi, who dwelt in a remote and sacred Himalayan fastness. 
Some of her critics uh, later argued that most of these trips and encounters were actually fictitious and that she never left Europe. So, you know, the 19th century gave us not only armchair archaeologists and armchair uh, uh, philosophers and scientists and historians, but also, why not armchair adventurers? Yeah, and also, you know, this is um, just uh, reinforces my already um, uh, deeply held belief that spiritualism is just another word for, word for bullshit, generally. Or farting. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, getting back <laughs> to this, by 1875, she funds the Theosophical Society. Uh, theosophy is supposed to be a synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. Um, you know, all things that we know just mix so well. Mm -hmm. And she is deeply involved in the spiritualist movement that is very popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And this spiritualist fad could partially be explained as a product of uh, bourgeois boredom, but for many it was also an escape or an explanation of the many social and technological changes surrounding them. Now, one of Blavatsky's fundamental texts is a book called The Secret Doctrine. Uh, and it's supposed to be a commentary on what she claimed were ancient Tibetan manuscripts. Uh, so what does Blavatsky write in this book? Um, here is a quote from uh, Goodrick Clark's uh, book. Not only was humanity assigned an age of far greater antiquity than that conceded by science, but it, will, but it was also integrated into a scheme of cosmic, physical and spiritual evolution. These theories were partly derived from late 19th century scholarship concerning paleontology inasmuch as Blavatsky adopted the racial theory of human evolution. She developed a cyclical doctrine with the assertion that each round witnessed the rise and fall of seven consecutive root races, which descended on the scale of spiritual development from the first to the fourth, becoming increasingly enmeshed in the material world before ascending through progressively superior root races from the fifth to the seventh. According to Blavatsky, present humanity constituted the fifth root race upon a planet that was passing through the fourth cosmic round so that a process of spiritual advance lay before the species. The fifth root race was called the Aryan race and had been preceded by the fourth root race of the Atlanteans, which had largely perished in a flood that submerged their mid-Atlantic continents. Oh my God, that's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, go on. Yeah, so, you know, by no means was she original in any way in uh, saying, uh, describing these things, because just off the top of my head, uh, as far as I can remember in Greek mythology, uh, the way they've envisioned, they envision sort of like the, the, the rise and fall of humanity was mm -hmm. uh, mapped through like, I think three or four ages, like it was the Golden Age, the Silver Age, and, and the Bronze Age. And uh, I think at the moment of, you know, the, the what the Greeks thought of as their time was uh, the Iron Age. And it was supposed to be like 
the moment of peak degeneracy. Uh, only um, as far as I can remember, the Greeks uh, did not have an equivalent of uh, Blavatsky's rise again. So from uh, so things getting better in in um, any way. Yeah, but what I like about it is that it's a bit like a best off of craziness <laughs> because it also mentions the Atlanteans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like so surprised when you reached the Atlantis. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Would you like to uh, hear more about the Atlanteans? Please amaze me. The Atlanteans had wielded psychic forces with which our race was not familiar. Their gigantism <laughs> enabled them to build cyclopean structures. So they were big boys. Uh -huh. And they possessed a superior technology based upon the successful exploitation of Fohad, energy used to basically build the universe. So, I don't know, helium? <laughs> uh, you know, I always loved this uh, notion of they possessed the essence. It was the energy. It was the fire from the forges that build the universe the thing the the, the 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 answer to the question of who what is the purpose of meaning the universe and everything and it's it's 42 basically. it's 42 basically yeah like <laughs> uh, i it's nothing uh, short of how much i love nowadays when people just talk to me about energy and i'm yes. like what sort of energy? What do you measure it in? And stress. The answer to everything is stress. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like measure energy. <laughs> Which kind? You just feel it. Yeah, you feel it. <laughs> yeah. So the three earlier races of the present planetary round were proto-human consisting of the first astral root race, which arose in an invisible imperishable and sacred land and the and the second hyperborean root race which had dwelt on a vanished polar continent hyperborea is also part of uh, robert e howard's conan stories in case that name sounds familiar just as a side note okay but get ready the third lemurian root race <laughs> The third Lemurian root race flourished on a continent which had lain in the Indian Ocean. Lemurs? Or is just a coincidence I of names? don't know really, but it, it, it's supposed to be bad, right? Because it's brown people and Indian Ocean. Okay. So according to people like Blavatsky and her ilk, it's probably just going to be bad. I can sense it. Sense it. Um, okay, so it was probably due to this race's position at the height of the evolutionary racial cycle's degenerative phase that Blavatsky charged the Lemurians with racial miscegenation, mm -mm, entailing mm -mm. a kind of fall and the breeding of monsters. So they were into freaky sex, and you'll hear more about that from our second Austrian boy. That crossbreeding thing, it's never good. Well, except maybe, uh, I wanted to say that it makes for a good porn, but uh, probably uh, Blavatsky and her friends would not appreciate that kind of stuff. So 
<laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> you probably won't be surprised to learn that besides the racial element, Blavatsky really stressed principles of elitism and hierarchy among her, uh, among her followers, as you do. Yeah. Was, was there anything about lobsters in there? I, I'm not sure about that. I think she might have been more of a scampy girl, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so fashioning herself after the image of the supposed masters she had encountered, she claimed to have sacred authority over the knowledge. Of course. Uh, according to her, when the Lemurians had fallen into iniquity and sin, only a hierarchy of the elect remained pure in spirit. This remnant became the Lemuro-Atlantean race uh, di uh, dynasty of priest kings who took up their abode on the fabulous island of Shambhala in the Gobi Desert. These leaders were linked with Blavatsky's own masters, who were the instructors of the fifth Aryan root race. So, you know, uh, the Lemurians are bad because they had freaky sex, but them getting together with the Atlanteans, that's fine. Although it's also sort of mixing, right? Well, so, I mean, just not, just not very consistent. I don't think logic is something you're supposed to be into when you read this. <laughs> I mean, I guess in a way we should recognize progress when we see it, because I I feel like inconsistency is what <laughs> makes these horrible people actually kind of human and relatable because of their sheer inconsistency. Because basically, you know, they, they keep saying that, you know, things like, I decide who is a Jew. Yeah. Or, you know, miscegenation is bad, except if I want to fuck a person of a different race. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the Murians are, are bad, but they get together with the Atlanteans. And that's somehow okay. And because, I don't know, they go on to be excellent teachers of the Aryan race, which we're not sure how that came about. But I guess it was from the race mixing, <laughs> right? I... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> okay, so what happens then? So, although a foreign hybrid combining Egyptian revivalism, American spiritualism and Hindu beliefs, theosophy enjoyed a considerable vogue in Germany and Austria. Its advent is best understood within a wider neo-romantic protest movement within uh, Germany known as Lebensreform, uh, life reform. Like I said, this movement represented a middle-class attempt uh, to escape or explain away the ills of modern life. A variety of alternative lifestyles, including herbal and natural medicine, vegetarianism, nudism and self-sufficient rural communes, were embraced by small groups of individuals who hoped to restore themselves to a natural existence. The political atmosphere of the movement was apparently liberal and left-wing, with its interest in land reform, but there were many overlaps with more conservative movements. So, so it was, you know, just enough bad to give a bad name even to the good things. 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you have a set of uh, hazy, uh, wacky ideas, uh, the ones uh, Blavatsky uh, has sort of promoted, uh, that are just excellent uh, inspiration uh, for people who have a more sinister agenda, so to speak. So, you know, these people might have been a group of happy-go-lucky hippies, uh, but as we shall see sooner or later, the same ideas uh, will uh, uh, get into the hands of uh, some bad hombres, as they said, as they say. Yeah, unfortunately, that is why we cannot have nice things. Yeah. Now we're on to our first... Um... Our first interesting yes, person. Yes, yes, very interesting person. We'll actually be reviewing two guys, two boys. Uh, one is Guido von List uh, and the other is Lanz von Liebenfels. I will be relying a lot on uh, the book of uh, one uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark. So when you hear me quote uh, anything, it will be most likely from, uh, from his book. I'll uh, kick this off uh, with a quote of uh, Clark describing the, the, the work of these men in his book, uh, The Occult Roots of Nazism, mm -hmm. like this. Their writings described a prehistoric golden age when wise agnostic priesthoods had expounded occult racist doctrines and ruled over a superior and racially pure society. They claimed that an evil conspiracy of anti-German interests, variously identified as the non-Aryan races, the Jews, or even the early church, had sought to ruin this ideal Germanic world by emancipating the non-German inferiors in the name of a spurious <laughs> egalitarianism. Whoa. What, what, that, what would you know? Yeah, 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 yeah that's always bad. Uh, the resulting racial confusion was said to have heralded the historical world with its wars, economic hardship, political uncertainty, and the frustration of German world power. Yeah, so, you know, it's... Uh, everything that's bad. Everything that's bad. Mm -hmm. Not good, guys. Mm -hmm. Not good. Not, not it's bad. bad. It's bad. bad. Very bad. Yeah. <clears throat> so, <laughs> so, okay, like I said, let's tackle the first douchebag. Guido von List. The von in uh, the name is actually fake, but as we'll see, claiming to have a, like an aristocratic pedigree is a thing with these people, uh, because List was, of course, bougie as fuck. Like, we've already found out that lords only give birth to lords. So yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. So he was a lord wannabe. <laughs> a lord in name only. Uh, so... Early on, according to Goodrich Clark, he wanted to become an artist and a scholar. Of course he did. Yes, a big brain boy. Uh, by which he understood, so he has his own mm. definition, a romantic historian who could read the past from folklore and the landscape. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I mean isn't that what you do? Fuck documents, archaeology stuff, no. Just, I mean, go and see the green pastures and then think of your ancestors. Facts are so, you know, yes, they're not even last century. Obviously, they were last century in his century. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it feels uh, over everything. 
feels überalles. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, that this happens in many families. <laughs> His father was having none of that, so he was like, son, get a job. Uh, so he resentfully had to follow uh, his father's commercial in his father's commercial footsteps. But you know, just in case you feel too sorry for this poor soul, <laughs> uh, he actually had the luxury of pursuing his interest in his free time, of which he had plenty, because of Papa's money. He would ride out in the countryside, sketching and writing about his experiences. So, uh, up to this point, it all seems rather innocuous, uh, but during a trip in 1875, uh, while with a group of friends that accompanied him, and, you know, his friends were just there to, you know, wine, dine, and have fun, List uh, was, you know, he had, he had the normal one, mm -hmm. uh, and he decided to celebrate on his own the anniversary, uh, anniversary of the tribal German victory over the Romans, with a fire and the burial of eight wine bottles in the shape of a swastika beneath the arch of the pagan gate. Yeah, I mean... Just having a normal some, one, like I said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some people have a drink with a friend, other people just bury the drinks yeah. in a swastika. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, just, also, it's, it's either or. Also, also littering. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. this event... <laughs> inspired him to write his first full-length novel called Carnutum. Uh, he claims that he had a vision of splendid buildings, ethereal figures of Carnutum's former inhabitants and the battle between the Germans and Romans. Okay, so, of course. Yeah, again, very normal stuff, very grounded in reality and, and stuff. Um, and <laughs> one of uh, the, uh, the first ideas he starts developing is that of a uh, German continuity and unity. So basically he tries to make the case that tribes in pre-Roman Austria and ethnic Germans today come from an almost uninterrupted line. Sure. The same way, you know, as all the Christians in America come, come from a straight line from white Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so um, he does state two critical events that interrupted this uh, uninterrupted line. Uh, one of them is the intrusion of the Romans, and the other one, uh, which really grinds uh, List's gears, is the rise of Christianity. Uh, the mythology List develops catches the attention of uh, the German nationalists, the pan-Germans that we've mentioned before, who are sort of in search of uh, someone who would legitimize their own uh, disenchantment with the multinational Austrian state. And uh, on uh, the 24th of uh, February 1893, uh, Liszt delivers a lecture at a pan-German event. So, you know, he was networking, making friends. <laughs> about the ancient holy priesthood of the Wotan, Wotan cult. Uh, Liszt claimed uh, this extinct, extinct faith had been the national religion of the Teutons. In due course, this imaginary priesthood be would become the central idea of his uh, political mythology. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the names. By the turn of the century, Liszt had achieved modest, modest success as a neo-romantic and nationalistic writer. The year 1902 witnessed a fundamental change in the character of his ideas. So, you know, it was it was mildly crazy up to this point, but now it gets... He thought he really needs to yeah, up his game. Yeah, he does, he does. So, 
1902, after undergoing an eye uh, operation to relieve a cataract, Liszt she finally saw. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all mythological mm -hmm. and metaphorical. Uh, so Liszt um, became temporarily blind for 11 months. I think uh, uh, the whole blindness uh, is, is t t tends to be a pattern with people going crazy because I, I know that they said about Hitler he was temporarily blind because of, I don't That's know... That's when some... your inner eye opens. Yes, exactly. When you really see. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> throughout a long and anxious period of uh, enforced rest, uh, he took solace in pandering, pondering the origins, well, pandering, <laughs> yeah, uh, the origins of the runes, uh, of uh, the runes and language. Uh, in April 1903, Liszt sent a manuscript about the Aryan proto-language to the Imperial Academy of Sciences in Vienna. So, you know, he was sciencing really hard. It was sent back <laughs> without any comments. <laughs> Because, of course, it was rubbish. So, you know. Nevertheless, it was a monumental effort in pseudoscience about Germanic linguistics and symbology. Uh, it was his first attempt to interpret by means of occult insight the letters and sounds of the runes and alphabet on the one hand, and the emblems and glyphs of ancient inscriptions on the other. Uh, although the Academy ignored him, this slight piece grew over the ensuing decade uh, to become the masterpiece of his uh, occult uh, nationalistic uh, nationalist uh, research. So uh, this sort of goes to show that no matter how crazy you become, if you if you if you have a, like a large scope of and you write something big. People, you will find enough people who will be impressed by you and will cheer well, you on. Posturing always works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to give you an idea of the sort of thorough and very scientific research that went into Liszt's study of runes and linguistics, um, here are some of the occult meanings he inferred were codified by these. Uh, so you know how when they first discovered the uh, hieroglyphs, they were like, oh, this must be some ancient, mysterious writing about very sacred rituals. And basically many of them were like grocery lists or <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty mundane things and stuff. That's the dog, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the dog sneezes. Uh, so okay so so uh, these pearls of wisdom that he uncovered were things like know yourself then you know everything embrace the universe in yourself and you can master the universe and you if you think about it weirdly enough so many years later there's still a market for this yes yes uh, another one do not fear death he cannot kill you okay <laughs> Uh, your life rests in God's hand. Trust him in yourself. Yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, even, one, one even the dog just goes... <laughs> uh, and um, man is one with God. And of course, the all-time favorite. <laughs> Marriage is the root of the Aryan race. <laughs> Marriage is the root of the Aryan Yes, yes. Like, I mean... Here's the other one out. <laughs> yeah, so it's all uh, new age silliness and um, yeah, uh, very, very 
Petersonian, mm-hmm, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, when the, the neckbeards uh, whip out the mythos, uh, you you know uh, things are about to get ugly. Uh, lists blueprint for a new pan-German empire called for the ruthless subjection of non-Aryans to Aryan masters, of course, in a highly structured hierarchical state. Of course. So as I said, like lobsters. Uh, the qualification of candidates for education or positions in public service, the professions and commerce rested solely on the racial purity. Uh, the heroic Aryo-Germanic race was to be relieved of all wage labor and demeaning tasks in order to rule as an exalted elite over the slave castes of non-Aryan peoples. List codified a set of political principles for the new order. Strict racial and marital laws were to be observed. A patriarchal society was to be fostered in which only the male head of the house had full majority. Of course. Sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> and only area Germans enjoyed the privileges, of, um, the privileges of freedom and citizenship. Each family was to keep a genealogical record attesting its racial purity. And basically this was a new... F- feudalism uh, that was to develop through the creation of large estates which would not be broken up but inherited only by the firstborn male in a family. These ideas bear an uncanny resemblance to the Nuremberg racial laws of of the 1930s and the Nazi vision of the future because of course I mean as I said this is basically the world building and the the lore uh, that underpins um, uh, this sort of, this sort of uh, worldview, I guess. Uh, it, it's it's really weird because uh, obviously they were trying to do both things, like we saw with uh, Galton and the eugenicist mm-hmm. movement. They were also going. They were also sort of attacking on the scientific front because obviously science also you, gives you, you a legitimacy. Yeah, some have some sort of. Be- idea that cannot be contested that it's backing your shit up yeah and and also in terms of uh sort of getting uh public support uh or winning over public opinion uh you go for uh different types of individuals that you need to convince and obviously some are persuaded by the idea that yes this is a very rational thing to do but also they had uh, the other uh, thing covered, the, uh, the em- well, the emotional sounds pejorative, but I mean, in terms of, in terms of actually uh, moving people that aren't necessarily crazy about, oh, we science every day, uh, the imagery you use and uh, giving people a sense of, uh, their life has a, mm-hmm. a greater meaning and there's a story that they can see themselves uh, being powerful or empowered uh, characters in. Or even if not necessarily empowered as individuals, but empowered as part of a group or a lineage. Sure. Lineage. Um, and yeah, they were... They were uh, they covered their ground pretty well in that respect. Uh, so... Yeah, things got dark pretty quickly, and uh, you know if you if you Google uh, all these people, well, n- n- not all these people, but for instance, Guido list, uh, well, yeah, 
he just seems like a sort of affable person like yeah he just looks like a 19th century bohemian i guess uh but uh and i'm sure he wasn't as i mean i don't i'm not i don't know if i'm sure he was uh he was an affable person but uh one doesn't need to be like a total asshole in order to come to some terrible terrible no ideas yeah you can like dogs yeah and kill people (laughs) yeah exactly and (laughs) and we know of someone like that we basically you know of many people like that yeah so anyway getting back to our uh, story in 1904, one Rudolf Berger demanded the Minister of Culture and Education to give a formal explanation uh, about Liszt's treatment, uh, well, of his work, as you mm-hmm. remember, it was mm-hmm. rejected. Uh, Fifteen other dignitaries then signed the interpolation, and although the Academy still snubbed them, uh, the event led to the founding of the Liszt Society in honor of the master's work. Again, he was uh, making yeah, you don't friends. Need he was the real <laughs> scientific community to back you up. Yeah. You just need powerful people friends. with with a lot of money to back you. Like that's also what happened with Galton. Like it, it it wasn't the scientific community who was like, yeah, sure, you're sciencing really well here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if people with money go like, yeah, we like this. It's useful then, for us. Then, then you're legit. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And also, if uh, sort of a system does not, uh, if the system ha- ha- does the gatekeeping because mm-hmm. it has uh, certain standards, and obviously you do not, um, um, you cannot go beyond that threshold. You just build a parallel system mm-hmm. that will mimic the system that people trust, mm-hmm. and uh, then if it's complex and strong enough and eventually uh, important uh, enough then people will just say well it, this is the same thing why are you you know why are you silencing certain voices yeah sure free speech man yes free speech. exactly exactly uh, <laughs> so remember in the beginning i told you uh, that the vaughn uh, in his name was, was fake. fake yeah uh, so here's the story on that between 1903 and 1906 Seven, a list made uh, occasional occasional use of the aristocratic title von in his name. Uh, he finally entered the title in the Vienna address book in 1907. Uh, this entry came to be noticed uh, by the nobility uh, by those at the nobility archive. Apparently, they had one of those. You have to keep track who's actually rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which urged an official uh, inquiry. Uh, inquiry. Uh, on uh, the 2nd of October, List asserted before the magistrates that his family was descended from a lower Austrian and Styrian aristocracy. Uh, he claimed that his great-grandfather had abandoned the title upon entering a burger trade as an innkeeper, but that he, Guido von List, had resumed the title after leaving commerce for a literary career in 1878. So, you know, basically uh, because his ancestors were too practical, mm-hmm. th- th- that's his explanation. That's, they were, th- that's why they were like, oh, surely uh, a, 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 an aristocratic title would by no means help me in any way in real <laughs> life. I would just drop it. Of course. Know, I'll just... That's what happens every time. Yeah, yeah, obviously. That's, mm-hmm. that, that's what we both did. Yeah. Yeah. Lady. Yeah. <laughs> Madam. Uh, so, 
the reason I brought this up, of course, people tend to swoon about having aristocratic blood. Uh, and uh, I, I think this sort of thing uh, needs to be made fun of. Uh, but uh, besides this, uh, it's also uh, it fits right. It also fits right with uh, right into how Liszt saw himself and his role in the world. Because obviously, you have to be a self-important nar- narcissistic bastard. Besides uh, harboring uh, sort of genocidal uh, views on uh, your fellow human beings, yes. So he um, he uh, already saw his creative pursuits as making him part of an uh, aristocracy of the spirit, uh, but then uh, and an intellectual elite. But this wasn't enough. So he also imagined his sa- himself as part of like a religious order. Mm-hmm. So you remember I said about the Voton cult, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, he started imagining how. Um, how to how to put this on his resume, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to his lecture uh, on the Wotanist priesthood, Liz believed that this ancient religious elite had uh, formed the first aristocracy of tribal Germany. From 1905 to 1907, he had extended this line through his heraldic studies. Uh, these discussions uh, treated heraldry as a system of esoteric family emblems which had been handed down from the old hierarchy to the modern nobility. By claiming an aristocratic title uh, and an armorial device, Liszt was reassuring himself that he was the descendant of the hierarchy as well as its historian. His friend, Franz, uh, Lance von Liebenf- Liebenfels, uh, had also assumed a noble title by 1903. Uh, so, uh, basically, uh, the thing is, the, the, the whole uh, claiming to be aristocratic just fitted in with his self-image and uh, his needs to feel more important than he actually was. Obviously. Yeah. Throughout his life, uh, Liszt had no uh, organizational or political talent. So, you know, he, he really was, like I said, the sort of the fanfic writer. Writer in the sense that he didn't he didn't take his vision beyond just words on paper and mm-hmm. uh, sort of role playing with his friends, LARPing, uh, which you know it in a way it's a good thing, but also it was just a matter of like a couple of generations until someone picked no, his ideas up, noticed and, yeah those ideas and yeah. had better organizational skills had a lot of fun with them yeah but uh, sort of um, as a way to bring the community of crazies together hmm. what he did manage to do is to create the Hoche Armane Orden I think uh, <laughs> a close group of fanboys that he would take on pilgrimages to certain places in the land in the magical land of Ostara where the spirit of Hari Votan still reigned. This is a quote. <laughs> so yeah, sure. so like I said, it's, it was basically a fan club uh, and they would just get together and pretend they were wizards, <laughs> priests, druids, I guess, things like that. So okay. Yeah, go places because they were all 
you know, men who had enough free time and money to do that. Um, and the way uh, the society was structured, and it's, uh, I'm talking about the Armana Norden, mm -hmm. um, was structured and its rituals were, have, uh, and uh, the way its rituals were sort of developed, um, was heavily influenced by Freemasonry. Uh, you might be thinking at this point, but wait a minute, this is about proto-fascists, so there will be uh, quite a bit of anti-Semitism and Freemasonry is heavily associated with Jewish cabals, like something doesn't add up. Well, don't you worry your pretty little head about that, <laughs> because Papa Guido's got you covered. Mm. List claimed that the original priest kings, so he's going for the combo here, mm -hmm. not okay. just priests, but they're all also alpha, so they're also the, the, the kings, they're not just guys wearing robes, right? Okay. Uh, so the priest, king, uh, priest kings had entrusted their gnosis, their knowledge, verbally to the rabbis of Cologne <laughs> during the 8th century, in order to safeguard its survival during a wave of Christian uh, persecution, the rabbis had then set these secrets down in Kabbalistic books, which were erroneously thought to represent the Jewish mystical tradition. So the Kabbalah is German, don't you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. so, you know, like I said, I mean, everyone, everyone is German, I, I even though they don't, know, don't know it. I, I obviously don't know, because since we are Romanians... Yeah. We know very well that everything it's, has to do with our origins. Not yes, every, origin. everyone used to be Dacian. Yes. Even the Germans who say that everyone used to be German. Yes. Everyone, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm sorry about their, their gods and everything. They're wrong, obviously. They're, they're, they're wrong. It's yeah. Zalmok says all the way, baby. Yes, yeah, yeah. And also, and also I like the fact that basically all the... All the cool things that they were learning about. They were like, oh, well, these people that we colonized and we despise otherwise, they, they have some cool stuff. Let me just, let me just, let me just culturally appropriate that <laughs> and not even, not even say that, oh, look, I'm wearing this cool, I don't know, uh, Chinese, Indian, whatever thing, or I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. adopting this thing. They were like, well. This Wouldn't was, you know? This was ours. This was of. ours. I, I, I'm just taking it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very interesting. Uh, anywho, uh, in uh, November 1911, uh, List received a letter from an individual calling himself Tarnhari. Mm. The name literally means the hidden lord. Oh, <laughs> who claimed that he was the descendant of, uh, or reincarnation of a chieftain of the ancient Volzungen tribe in prehistoric Germany. So, you know, the madman comes up with some bullshit and then there's someone who's like, yeah, sure, I, uh, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm one of them. Um, Tanhari assured List that his ancestral clairvoyant memories confirmed uh, List's own reconstruction of the Aero-Germanic tradition uh, and hierarchic institutions. So he's like, yes, trust me, I can confirm that this is true because I come from the past. Starnhari <laughs> <laughs> uh, subsequently published uh, two patriotic bro brochures, later establishing a folkish 
publishing house at Leipzig. During the early post-war period, he was associated associated with Dietrich Eckhart, Hitler's mentor in the early days of the Nazi party. And the plot thickens. Uh, uh, that Tarnhari popularized Liszt's ideas during the war can be seen from the writings of uh, who? Another name, Elegard Ellerbeck, a, fol- a folkish mystical author, who paid his extravagant uh, tribute to both Tarnhari and Liszt. Uh, His his example was followed by others in the 1920s uh, who wrote about the religion of Armenism and uh, guaranteed this word a certain currency in uh, nationalist uh, usage. Um, During World War I, Liszt's ideas continued to attract people who sought sacred explanations for the hardships and trials of the war. Liszt received many letters from men at uh, the front who expressed their gratitude for his cheering discoveries. Stories of runes and ancient Aryan symbols found on stones uh, far from um, the hearth and uh, home gave them hope in a final victory of the Aryan Germans. At the beginning of 1917, Liszt had a vision which assured him of a final victory for the central powers over the Allies. But these hopes were betrayed. The year 1918 brought the Allied blockade of Europe, where food and fuel supplies ran low in the cities. In the early autumn, uh, Austria-Hungary began to dissolve, and the Austrians were compelled to sue for peace on uh, the 3rd of October 1918. Um, of course, this regarded the catastrophe in a millenarian context, and uh, felt that this collapse was necessary as a period of woes before the salvation of the area Germans. So uh, there's, of course, this mechanism that we see in many sort of uh, cults that rely on prophets and things like that, when whatever the big event that is supposed to rally the crowds... And somebody has to tell you what, yeah. Yeah, what yeah. the God wants. Yeah, and when that event does not occur they are like well uh, of course we we had some problems with the math <laughs> and, uh, uh, or you know uh, wait wait this just in uh, I got a new message and the party's off <laughs> the party's postponed yeah for yeah. a bit like the next 20 years and then we're all yeah. again sure. yeah and and uh, I think it's called like the the whole uh, the sunken cost mm. uh, principle, right? When many of the people who are actually within uh, such groups, even though you would think from the outside that this sort of thing would just make them go, oh, okay, so it was bullshit and I should just get out. Uh, it makes them double down. Mm-hmm. And they... But I mean, if yeah. you spend a lot of time and energy and belief and you invest emotionally yeah. in something giving it up also means that you've been a schmuck all along yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah that's hard to do yeah and, uh, and i'm guessing for many people uh they genuinely well i mean i, I guess it depends but i but but, but for some people it probably uh, um, they get a kick out of it in the sense that it's either a feeling of 
camaraderie that they might get within the group of or course, a feeling it's of a whole package. yeah 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 and probably also they feel like for the first time maybe in their life they have they matter uh, yeah they, they matter to yeah, somebody yeah, of yeah. Course. and they're special yes yeah uh, okay so to wrap this um this up a bit um what was once uh, a means of escapism for him, for Liszt, I mean, the whole, he just wanted to be like this, I don't know, surfer dude in, in a way, like he just <laughs> wanted to travel around and write and draw and stuff. Whatever literary talent he might have had um, was yeah. definitely, in the end, not Yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't basically... Um, uh, you know, he he he, he could have well. He could have just been like a, one of a dozen mediocre writers who were just doing so. And, and I, I mean mediocre, but not in like a bad way. Just I mean, like there are genuinely good writers who are mediocre, <laughs> in in the sense that they are extremely enjoyable without necessarily being. Um, full of fresh ideas or mm -hmm. have the the best way with words, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, he could have been just one of these, you know, self-publishing people uh, who are who have the means to do something they like without having to be acknowledged by anyone else as being particularly brilliant at what they do. Sure, just but... have your own group of fans and they applaud you and everything. So you know. Yeah, but obviously it, it, it wasn't in his heart. <laughs> it wasn't enough. It wasn't no. enough. It, it it got a bit more real. I think perhaps this would be a good place to end this first episode, uh, since this seems to be taking longer than we've anticipated. Uh, hope you're going to tune in for our second episode, where we're going to discuss another Austrian fellow by the name of Lance von Liebenfels and his weird obsession with sexy beasts. Uh, was he a proto-furry? Debatable. Was he a proto-fascist? Definitely. Okay, that's it from us guys. Thank you for listening. Bye!